You're listening to Earth Matters, produced in the studios of 3CR Radio Fitzroy, Victoria, and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. Earth Matters, each week we bring you environmental and social justice stories. I'm Kerry Lee Harding. Coming up on Earth Matters, we take a look at the Save the Tarkine campaign. My next guest, he would like to see the Tasmanian state Liberal government do much more to save the Tarkine region. The Save the Tarkine campaign aims to protect pristine rainforest and this land, which is also home to many significant and sacred Aboriginal cultural heritage sites and is also home to over 60 rare threatened and endangered species. This pristine and ancient rainforest eucalypt areas are situated on the beautiful coastline of the Southern Ocean area, which is located in the northwest of Tasmania and over the years has had many threats to the local land and waters, including logging, mining and also four-wheel drive vehicle use through significant Aboriginal sites. The habitat of the Tarkine is also home to the last disease-free population of the Tasmanian Devil. Save the Tarkine group are also seeking to have the area be protected as a World Heritage Site. Scott Jordan has worked as the campaign coordinator Save the Tarkine for the last 12 years – And I first started off by asking Scott to explain how and why he first became interested and involved in this environmental campaign. Well, look, I could probably take a step further back than that. Um, Back back in 1988, I finished uh, year 10 high school in in Tasmania and um, raced off to to the the west coast of Tasmania where I'd grown up. And and, um, my father had worked in the mining industry down in that area. Um, not far south of the Tarkine, and and I'd, I'd grown up in and around that area, and and had a yeah an affinity with it, and um, had never really stopped to consider what the threats to it were, and and we all finished school in our year, and we yeah we all thought we were going off to work in the mine, and that year the tin price dropped, and so the um, a lot of the mine um, started to shut down, or of course shed staff, and so um, we found ourselves in a situation where there wasn't going to be jobs. In that tin mine, and so um, yeah, we we started looking for other things. And one of the things I found was mining exploration work. And so I, my first job out of school really was uh, walking up rivers up and down the Tarkine, um, doing exploration work, collecting soil samples. And so I got to walk in some of the most beautiful rainforest you'll ever experience. And and as a 15 year old straight out of high school, I had never considered what happens if that bag of dirt I just put in my pack. Um, reveals a gold mine, you know, and what sort of damage could be done. There just wasn't, even in my thinking at that time. And then I went off and I, um, that work went, you know, um, dried up as part of the, you know, the, the mining decline at the at the time. And we, I ended up and did 15 years in youth work and, and came back to um, the Tarkine story through a couple of friends of mine who, who were active on it. And I volunteer, offered to volunteer some time with it. And 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 I guess reconnected with that love of the place and and that that experience that I'd had as a much younger me um, out in there and and found that um, with with the knowledge I had now I just couldn't countenance that that you know somebody would want to put a, a new mine in the middle of these beautiful rainforests or or they wouldn't want to go and log them and so um, I guess at that point that the the choice yeah had been made for yeah in that. Um, Knowing what I knew, I, I couldn't couldn't turn my back on it anymore. 
You just mentioned there a little bit earlier that uh, you were collecting uh, soil samples, uh, walking along the beautiful river. What was the environment like back then? Describe it for us. The area that I was in uh, is, is still the way it was. and it, uh, it's, it's an area of, of beautiful rainforest. It's, it's ancient myrtle rainforest um, filled with, with um, yeah, other species like sassafras and, and um, your, your leatherwood that produces the amazing aromatic honeys from Tasmania. It's filled with ferns and, and yeah, uh, ranging from the small ones to the, to the massive tree ferns. Uh, it's, it's filled with mosses and lichens and, and this whole uh, ecosystem where there's just not a not an inch of space that's wasted. Uh, whether it's vertical or horizontal, there is something finding a way to grow on it. And it, it's just this life-giving, wet um, you know, environment that, that, that really does lift your soul. And, and um, you know, unfortunately, parts of the, the Tarkine have been impacted by logging um, over the last year. Uh, 50 years in particular, and and we're seeing a massive push by our current state government to reopen logging in areas that, that in fact, John Howard had protected back in uh, 1997 and again in, in 2004. And, and we've seen through the mining boom, we had a massive rush for um, companies that, that wanted to open new mines for tin or iron ore in the Tarkine. And, and we've fortunately seen a, a decline in the mining activity as the, those prices have have dropped, but but we're still faced very much with a state government who wants to to reopen those those reserves and 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 progress into mine areas that out to log areas. Sorry that that um that John Howard agreed should be protected. Let's talk about the local traditional owners. How closely do you work with the Aboriginal community in Tasmania to uh, to fight for Aboriginal cultural heritage on country? Look, we've got a great um, relationship with. Um, the Tasmanian Aboriginal Corporation and also with the Tasmanian uh, Aboriginal Land Council. And so uh, along with them, uh, we've, we've run campaigns to, to try and um, get four-wheel drive activity out of those areas of significance to the Aboriginal community. Um, we've got a large amount of um, midden sites. We've got hut depressions. We've got uh, sites, uh, sealing sites from from the Aboriginal people along the coast. Uh, we've got petroglyphs, the rock carvings along the coast. We've got um, stone tool scatters. We've, we've, got, um, we've got areas where, where yeah, they're known to be burial sites. And so it's, yeah, there's this huge diversity of Aboriginal cultural heritage that is in, invaluable. It can't be replaced. And, and so with the Aboriginal community, we worked under the previous government to have some of those tracks closed down and so out of 95 tracks we we only managed to get 15 closed and of those 12 of them really were duplicate tracks so it was a scenario where there was might be three or four tracks onto one piece of beach and we managed to convince the government that they really only needed the one track onto that beach um, and so the three that were really controversial involved um, tracks that, that ranged down the southern coast uh, of the Sarkine and they, they were the areas that had been least damaged already by, by um, four-wheel drive activity but were, were experiencing uh, escalating levels of damage. And so the idea was the government agreed they would protect those areas um, yeah, and, and leave the ones that, that where the damage had been done on the northern end of the coastline um, available. And, and it was less than we wanted to achieve, but it was, it was a middle ground, I guess, that, that 
was found at that time and that's what the government committed to. Unfortunately, the the incoming Liberal government came into power on a promise to the four-wheel drive community that they were going to reopen all of those tracks. And so we're currently in a in a battle with a state government who who um who wants to open up access to those those tracks which have now been closed for um you know coming up towards five years. And so um you know it's it's it seems to be a never ending battle and um yeah huge credit to the Tasmania Aboriginal Corporation who who took this matter to the federal court last year um and won and then were, were had to return to the court when the state government joined by the federal government appealed that decision and so they won the appeal as well and and now we've got this um the result of that case was that the, the state government couldn't open those tracks without a federal government approval and so the, the place we're in right now is that the the federal government is considering the um the referral from the tasmanian government um for him to decide whether it will go to a full environmental impact assessment or whether it will um be rejected as clearly unacceptable and um, we've made a very strong push along with the Aboriginal community that it, that it is clearly unacceptable and it shouldn't go through the farce of um, an environmental assessment on something that just clearly shouldn't be allowed to happen. You're just talking about their uh, proposed environmental impact assessment. Uh, how many cultural heritage surveys have been done in the area to date? I'm sure there's been quite a few done already by local people down there. Well, there's been a lot of work done by, by local um the Aboriginal people, the Tasmania Aboriginal Centre, and the Land and Sea Council. So, um, then what we haven't had is is the state government um, committing to to doing that level of work before they come up with their plan to uh, open the sites. And so we have Aboriginal heritage surveys that were done um, prior to the closure of the tracks, and very strongly recommended the closure of those tracks. Um, but we haven't had any work done since, and so uh, we know that that some of the work from the the Tasmania Aboriginal Corporation off their own bat have gone up and they've identified sites that weren't identified within that those initial reports. Um, and so there's a lot more work to be done. And, and to be fair to the authors of that previous report, they, they one of their findings was that there was there was further work needed to be done. Um, but at the moment we have a, a, a sort of crazy scenario in that the, the referral to the federal government to open the tracks has has referred to the. Um, uh, a supporting document being the evidence given in that initial report to, for the argument to have them closed. And so this is a government that really hasn't done the work and they've just grasped for any report they can they can uh, add to, to tick the boxes without actually looking at, at what the recommendations of those reports really were. And so it's, uh, I, I think in some ways they've, they've helped our case. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with me. Kerry Lee Harding, and you're listening to Scott Jordan, campaign coordinator for Save the Tarkine, and he's yarning with me about the latest threats to the Tarkine located in the northwest region of Tasmania. You've come out in a media release recently uh, saying um, what's actually going on down there? How on earth does the minister fail to notice 80,000 cubic metres of acid producing waste? You've also said in the media release, has he set out to mislead the parliament or is he hoping that scribbling on terms will fix the problem? Explain this 80,000 cubic metres of acid producing waste and what that will mean for uh, the land. The 80,000 cubic metres of waste we referred to in that is related to the the three minerals Nelson Bay River mine in the Tarkine. And so um, Shree Minerals is a company that put forward a an iron ore mine proposal in the Tarkine, an area that, that, that 
simply wasn't um, you know, a place where you should be putting an open cut mine. And and our organisation fought that, and we took it to the federal court, and we we had the the federal approvals overturned by the federal court. And unfortunately, the the um, the minister reapproved that mine with weaker terms and conditions um, just ten days later. And so we we found ourselves. Um, you know, with with that mine commencing construction, and um, we we took a case into the the state courts about some amendments that the state government allowed to their initial permit, particularly around the storage of acid producing waste. And um, in the meantime, while we we're in court, the company only lasted seven months, or uh, well, the mine only lasted seven months before it fell over because it, it just couldn't sustain itself at the iron ore price. Um, this is a company that needs at least $120 US a ton, and and that that's really an unprecedented scenario. We we got there for a very short time at the very peak of the the mining boom, but um, you know we haven't been there since. This was always a doomed mine, and our opposition to it was was always you know um, pointing out to people as well that the you know we, the damage that would be done there would be for naught. You know it was it was a mine that wasn't going to to make the distance and and any promises they made of economic you know, benefits to the region just couldn't be fulfilled. And and in some ways, unfortunately, we were right, and, and they, uh, they've fallen over it. But what we're left with is 80,000 metres, cubic metres, of acid-producing waste. So this is rock that um, contains sulphide deposits. Um, in the, you know, the iron ore is in a sulphide deposit, and so when you bring that to, um, to the surface, it combines with oxygen and moisture, and and you know, starts producing sulfuric acid. And so there's all this acid-producing material now sitting at surface. The original permit condition said it had to be stored below ground, below the water level, so that the oxygen could be kept out of it um, by, by flooding the, that part of the pit. And so this material is sitting there, and we've had now you know, over three years of inaction by the EPA and, and by the... the, the, the um, the mines minister on on getting this dealt with, and it's our view that this company is is likely to be insolvent in yeah you know, within a year or so, and this mine won't um, in any foreseeable future be in a position to reopen and and rectify the situation. So we've been calling on the minister to use the powers he has under the act to increase the bond because we we know we have evidence that the the current bond is insufficient for. The rehabilitation task, and so if the government was left with the job of cleaning it up themselves, um, they would have to be dipping into the taxpayers' funds to 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 undertake the task. And so we've been calling on the minister to um, increase the bond on this company to a level that would cover the job, and, and then you know, if the company is not willing to undertake the work, then they should immediately start to clean up and, and avoid the acid mine drainage issues, sort of looking us in the face and. And when asked that question in the Parliament, uh, the Minister tried to play games around whether the mine was on the Nelson Bay River or whether it was, was somewhere else. And in fact, the, the reality is it's, it's the, the Nelson Bay River mine, the, the acid um, waste is sitting 180 metres downhill, uh, well from the mine it's downhill to the, to the river, and, and at the, the, the closest point of the actual open cut pit it's it's only uh, less than 50 metres, 80,000 cubic metres of acid-producing waste. You know where it is. You, you know how close the river is, and, and you should be taking action. And tell me, Scott, what impact is that now having on the environment and the species in the area? Well, look, the, the current impact's a bit unknown. In that there's, 
there are some conditions around it where while the mine is, is still under care and maintenance and there is still a, a maintenance program around it, they're likely, um, if they're abiding by their permit conditions, uh, they would be adding um, a lime material to it that would, would neutralise those acids. Um, and so the, the current situation is it's probably contained at the moment. But the problem really is what happens when the when the company goes under or when they finish mining because there is currently no... Um, yeah, if there's not a company there to be putting lime on it and, and paying for that, uh, then it doesn't happen. And that, that's been our experience with mines, uh, not just in Tasmania, but around the country where um, while the mine operates, they're able to demonstrate that they are, you know, in, in many cases, within the acceptable parameters. But it's, it's when the mine finishes... That it, it may be five or ten years, or sometimes you know twenty years down the track before those acid mine drainage issues emerge. And so we've got mines here in Tasmania that were closed and nominally rehabilitated and and ticked off as, as a job well done. And then ten years down the track, they've started to spew out acids. And if we look at uh, a, a project also that was in the Tarkine that finished in 1986, uh, it had a um, a tick off and a, and a clean bill of health, you know, given to it. And then 10 years later, it started to um, have acid you know, coming out of those old tailings and rock dumps. And so we, we now have six kilometres of the White River that is is toxic. There is no aquatic life left in it. Um, it's the, the acid that's come into it has dissolved iron from the surrounding stone. And so you're left with this um, very fine orange rust-like um, silt that, that has coated everything in the river and and, and any fish at the end of the river just find their gills are blocked up by this stuff and they, 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 you know, they die. And so this is the sort of scenario we're trying to avoid. You've expressed your concerns that local state government are perhaps not doing enough on country with this issue. What would you like the EPA to do uh, if you would have your way? Well, look, I mean, the EPA um, really should uh, intervene to, to request, you know, to order them um, the material you put back in the pit straight away. And and part of the problem here is that the, the former director of the EPA uh, changed those conditions that previously said you had to store the material below ground um, to say that you could now store it above ground and, and, uh, and a court overturned that decision. And so the EPA have found themselves in an awkward place of their own creation where, where they have um, given them a, a permit um, to do something other than their original permit that, that wasn't allowed to them by law and, and are now in a spot where the, the company, I guess, points the finger back at the EPA and says, well, we only did it because you told us we could. And so we, we're seeing a reluctance by the EPA to take any definitive action on this and to actually look for uh, ways to, to in, um, empower the company to apply for an entirely new permit to do it the way they'd like to do it. And so we've, we've had three years of of waiting to see what's going to happen on this. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the EPA, you know, seem to have compromised themselves and are unwilling to um, to, to take a hard line on this. And, and, you know, the problem's not going to go away. It has to, has to be dealt with. And the sooner we deal with it, the less of a problem we're going to have. Must be frustrating for you working on this campaign and having to wait, I guess, just the last three years for an outcome. How frustrating is it for you personally? Oh, look, it's incredibly frustrating when these things, it's so avoidable. You know, even setting aside the issue that we didn't think there should be a mine there and we campaigned strongly against that mine, the idea that they're given a permit and then a month after they're given the permit, they're able to get it changed. 
these guys have got a track record and, and they shouldn't have been given any leeway and to have been accommodated the way they were and then uh, you know, allowed to run this scenario, you know, this farce on for another three years. It's just, you know, I can't fathom it. It's incredibly frustrating and um, I often have to do myself a trip to the rainforest to calm myself down. And tell us about that special place that you like to go to. Which particular area of rainforest in Tassie do you get to explore? And tell us about the environment that you come across and the beautiful species, uh, animals that you discover along your walks. Yeah, look, I mean, the Tarko is a great you know, space in terms of, you know, it's got a range of forests. It's got the rainforest, but the rainforest actually only make up about half of the Tarkoid. So we've also got some, some um, eucalypt-dominated forest in parts of it. We've got huge areas of, of um, heathland and, and button grass area as you move towards the coast. We've got some, some um, high granite hilltops over, over parts of it, and, and then we've got that coastal area, which is just an incredibly powerful southern ocean coastline that um, you know, uh, really you see the full, the full force of nature. And it's quite the contrast between the... The, the quiet, soft, mossy rainforest and this powerful, raw fury of the Southern Ocean hitting the coast. And so you, you get quite a diversity across the Tarkine. But look, my my favourite spots are, are those rainforest areas. And um, earlier this year, along with um, our colleagues at the Bob Brown Foundation and a, and a team of volunteers, we held a five-month vigil camp to prevent an area of that rainforest being logged. Um, we held that camp from uh, February through to... Um, June and so um, they, you know, they aren't allowed to log it. There's two eagle nests that have been identified in it and so they, they can't log it while the breeding season is on uh, but it, it may be that come February we're back out in it again so yeah, there, there's no bad spots in the Tarkite. You know, there's plenty there to choose from to, to get uh, you know, for some very different experiences. And tell me more about the beautiful trees. I mean how tall are we talking uh, that these trees are at risk of uh, logging in the Tarkite? Rainforest trees aren't as tall as some of the tall eucalypt forests we have in the, the southern parts of the state. So those those tall eucalypt forests usually are around the eucalyptus regnans, and we have some of those in the Tarkine, but um, but predominantly they're in the south of the state, and they are they are massive trees that can grow uh, hundred metres or more. And so um, in the Tarkine, the rainforest tends to be lower growing, and so we have. Um, Trees there are very old, but they, they might not be as tall as some of the others that are quite younger than them. And so, um, you know, the, well, the old, I think the oldest myrtle uh, tree being that iconic rainforest species in the Tarkine uh, that, that we know of is probably around a 1,000 years old. Um, a hue and pine that, that grows along the southern fringe of the Tarkine, some of those can be 3,000 years old. And so there's some very ancient forests there. Um, we don't win the award for the for the for the biggest the tallest tree. We certainly, <laughs> yeah, we're in the running for the oldest. How do you see this campaign save the Tarkine playing out into the future? And how do you see the environment looking twenty, thirty years from now down that way? Well, look, I guess I'm an optimist, and and I believe our campaign will will deliver a Tarkine National Park and World Heritage Area, and that that's where we 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 aim to be. Um, the the question is though, how soon do we get there? And how much damage will be done along that road? And so, uh, you know, the the aim for us is to is to you know, get rid of the logging from those um, ancient rainforests and, and eucalypt forests in the Tarkine. It's to protect the coast from from the um, four-wheel drive and off-road vehicle use in those sensitive sites. And it's and it's about you know making sure there are no new mines 
uh, in the in the Tarkine. And so they're, they're very live issues right now and they, they occupy our time and our energy in, in fighting them. But, you know, I think you've got to be an optimist in this space and you've got to believe that we know overwhelmingly public support is behind us and um, sometimes it takes government a little bit of time to catch up with that public support. But we, we believe we're on the right side of history and, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll stay in the fight and we encourage... You know, all Australians to come and, and stand up for this area and um, you know, the more people that join us, the, the louder our voice is and the sooner we'll get that outcome. Let's just talk about the process for gaining world heritage status. At what stage are you up to with that process? Well, look, under, under the current regulations, to, to get world heritage status, you need a, a referral from the state government uh, uh, to the federal government to put it on a... a um, a tentative list, and then the, the state, uh, the federal government, sorry, has to then uh, make the nomination to the World Heritage Body. And so we currently have a state government that's that, that wants to log it and mine it. So we, we, they're not going to make that um, initial referral to the federal government just yet. We've got a state election coming up in, in March this year, and we're hoping that yeah, through that election campaign, we'll have a bit of pressure put on candidates from all sides of politics to to um, take a position on the Tarkine that that looks to the protection of it and the, and the preservation of the, of it as a an asset that has outstanding tourism significance. There's a huge amount of tourism businesses here in Tasmania that are employing lots of people off the Tarkine, and and you know they're they're consistently standing up and saying, you know, we we need. Um, this area to be retained and protected for us to be able to take our visitors in there and give them the experience that they want. And we've got people coming from all over the world to see the Tarkine and um, there's, a, there's a real clash between the old industries, which in the case of forestry lost $67 million last year cutting down trees in the Tarkine. It's not a not an industry that, that provides resources to the taxpayer. It actually takes money out of our capacity to put in nurses and teachers and policemen. And and what we're left with is um, you know, areas where they've they've been that are that are less valuable than as a tourism asset. And so um, you know, we we think there's a very bright future for the Tarkine in in protection and in, in you know making a, a place where visitors can come and, and experience those ancient forest and wild coastline. But you can't have it both ways. You can't be logging it and mining it and expecting people to come here and, and feel that they've got a genuine experience. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with me, Kerry Lee Harding, and you just heard there from Scott Jordan, campaign coordinator for Save the Tarkine. To find out more information on Save the Tarkine, you can go to their website at www.tarkine.org.au. And if you missed some of today's show, don't forget that our podcast can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support and the dedicated people at the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this program out to you. The Earth Matters program is produced in the studios at 3CR Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria, on the Kulin Nation. Our contact number is 03-9419-8377 and our email is earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for today, but we'll be back again next week with more deadly environment social justice stories. And for more information to find out how you can support 3CR, go to our website www.3cr.org.au.